The scripture reading today comes from Genesis chapter 39. I'll be reading from verses 1 through 23. Now, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So he left in Joseph's care everything he had. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now, Joseph was well-built and handsome, and after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, My master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants was aside. She caught him by his cloak and said, Come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him the story. That Hebrew slave you brought us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story his wife told him, saying, This is how your slave treated me, he burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. And this is God's word. You know, we, we've been walking through for the, for the past year this series on Genesis, and now we're concluding with the life of Joseph. And it's interesting because chapters 1 through 36, God's presence God always appeared. You heard his voice. You heard him before Abraham and Sarah, even Isaac, and even wrestles Jacob. But from chapter 37 and on, God is almost eerily silent. He seems absent. And in the life of Joseph, there are no voices, there are no appearances, there are no miracles, but there's lots and lots of suffering. And here's the point. God is still there. He's still present. With God, silence is not absence. And today's passage, if you think it's just about sex, if you think it's just about lust, you're actually missing the point because Joseph undergoes multiple temptations here in this narrative. 
And so in order to understand this passage, we need to look at all of them. There are three points today. We're going to look at one, the first temptation, two, the second temptation, three, we're going to look at a third temptation. The three temptations of Joseph and also their temptations that we commonly face, especially in this crisis, in this time. First temptation, verses one to nine. Joseph, he's sold by his brothers and he's brought to Egypt, this foreign place, a wilderness for him, into the house of Potiphar. And Potiphar, he's one of Pharaoh's officials. It says, the text says that he's the captain of the guard. Now, what is that? Most likely, Potiphar was the commanding general of Egypt's armed forces. So this man is the commander of the most powerful military, of the most powerful empire in the world. That makes him one of the most powerful people in the world to date. So what? That means that Joseph came from being a slave, brought pretty much coming from the dead, to a place of power in a high place in a foreign land. And verse 4, the text, I mean, the text is very explicit and repeats over and over rhythmically. Verses 4 and 5 and 6, you see Potiphar trusted Joseph so much that the entire state, the holdings, the wealth, it was all placed. All the accounts were placed under Joseph's care. Everything. Now here's a question for you. How do you deal, how do you deal with the trust that people give you? How do you deal with the power that you are given? How do you deal with the wealth that you are given? Because look, there are two case studies. There are two case studies here in this text. And it's, you know, very, very interesting here. The first case study is Potiphar's wife. Potiphar's wife is the wife of one of the most powerful men in the world. And in verse 7 and verse 12, at least in the NIV, you hear her constantly going to Joseph. It wasn't just twice. It says over and over she did this, come to bed with me. That's five words in English. Now, if you turn to the ESV, it's a bit more of a sophisticated uh, translation of the Bible. That phrase is translated in three words. She says, lie with me. But in the Hebrew, you only see two words. Very, very emphatic. Almost commanding. I mean, there are many ways you can, if you can take that phrase, come to bed with me or have sex with me and, and sum it up in two words, it's very crass, right? Come, sex, now. There are probably worse ways to say it. But it looks like uh, this passage is about sex as a result. But in reality, this is how Potiphar's wife uses power. She's drawn to men with power. She's drawn to men with power and wealth because it makes her feel powerful and wealthy. She's drawn to men like Potiphar and now Joseph, this younger, handsome, well-built man, also tremendous amounts of power and intelligence. Nowadays in our society today, we, we can't look at that and say, wow, that's so primitive because look at the way we choose our partners today. What do you look for? Do you look for things that make you feel powerful, rich? Do you look for things that make you feel acceptable and approvable because in this passage she's drawn to men with power and so she uses this power that power has kind of gone into her twisted or corroded her over the years in a way that she uses power to betray cheat even against her own husband to fulfill these desires and cravings what do you use your power and intelligence and your education and your status and your wealth to fulfill Because if you look at the second case study, you have Joseph. Joseph also comes to power. Joseph also is entrusted with a lot. 
In verse 4, the text says that Joseph became Potiphar's attendant. That's the same word that's used to describe Joshua's relationship with Moses as the one who's going to succeed Moses. And how does Joseph use the power that's given to him? Verse 5, it says that he uses the power to bless. In fact, Potiphar's entire household is richly blessed. And so Potiphar, everything that he had, his house, his fields, that means all of his accounts because in ancient times, a man's wealth is tied to his estate, is tied to his holdings, is tied to his household. They were all blessed here because of Joseph's use of power in a society that does not acknowledge God, in a culture that does not acknowledge God, in a household that does not acknowledge God. God richly blessed this godless household because of Joseph and through Joseph. Potiphar was able to see that real relationship between Joseph and God. Now think about this. Joseph was not a pastor. Joseph is not a preacher. Joseph is not a missionary. He's a highly successful businessman, and God used him in his workplace to demonstrate the type of intimacy that he has with Joseph. What does that tell you? God cares about how you do your work. God cares about how you are at work. And God cares about your work. Through Joseph, he blessed everything that he did. Godly character is demonstrated by how power and wealth and sex, the unholy trinity in some ways, right? Power, wealth, and sex are regarded by you. It's not that those things are wrong. It tends to, given how you use it, it can corrode you and twist you in a way that will shape the way you use these things and use other people and regard other people. Godly character is demonstrated by high power and wealth and sex are regarded by you. Every bit is imp- and it's every bit as important in the workplace as you were regarded in the church. You get that? Because God can use you anywhere, you have to practice his presence everywhere, even if he seems absent in your life. Joseph went from being a slave to a businessman and from a businessman to becoming a government executive. And he was able to launch or execute a national hunger relief program to save his entire country, to save his people, to save his family. And it's all because he learns how to use power, the power that was given to him. This passage shows us how God can use you, that if you learn how to use power in a way, then how God can use that to advance his kingdom and redeem others, bless others. Joseph learned how to have power without power having him. Joseph learned how to use power without having power then using him. You see that? That's the first temptation. Now, let's talk about the second temptation. You can't avoid it because the entire narrative uh, revolves around it, and that's the sexual temptation. Um, and you, you have to address it because it's so over the top. It's so explicit. Potiphar's wife says to Joseph over and over and over again, come to bed with me. Come, sex, sex now, lie with me. But verse 8, Joseph refused. And verse 9, he calls it wicked and he calls it sin against his God. Sex is an expression of total, absolute oneness. 
and God had instituted God had God had instituted this in the context of marriage because in marriage what you're saying is everything I have is yours everything that I'm a part of you're now a part of our lives are joined as one so that means emotionally financially socially in every way every dimension in sickness and in health in in want or in plenty we say everything that I have is yours You belong to me and I belong to you. So sex is an expression outwardly of total, absolute oneness inwardly. Now, point one is how do you use power? Point two, how do you use sex? In this kind of sex-crazed, sex-driven society. Because when you give yourself sexually without marriage, it's kind of like God has given you something. You know, a, a creator or a designer has given you something, a tool that is used with particular instructions, and you just disregard the instructions, what's going to happen to that tool? It's going to break. Because when you give yourself sexually without marriage, what you're saying is, I want that physical oneness on the outside. I want that thrill of oneness, but I'm not ready for the responsibility. I'm not ready for the call. I'm not ready for the ownership, taking care of that oneness in a way that's legally binding before witnesses. In a legally binding relationship. Now, when you do that, you're just using one another for emotional fulfillment, physical fulfillment. If you're just having sex, then it's because sex has you. You get that? That's Potiphar's wife. Sex has her. And so it's twisted her and corroded her, and, and she's, she's adulterous, and she's immoral, and she lacks integrity. What's integrity? Integrity is when what's on the inside. That's your emotions, your, your psychology, your finances, your social uh, relationships, your everything that is, is legally bound up and reflected on the outside through vows and promise. And when you do that in a covenantal way, what you do, then you say, now I can now open myself up uh, in a physical way. And when that inside and outside are consistent. We say you are whole. You are consistent. There's integrity there. The word integrity comes from the word integer. Integer means whole number. It's not fractioned. It's not fragmented. Your body and your soul are integrated. But if you're physically behaving like you are one in every way, as if you are emotionally one or psychologically one, where there's oneness financially or socially, or as if your family is already joined together, but you haven't been bound as one legally, Right In marriage, then what's on the inside and what's on the outside are not integrated. They become disintegrated. You see that? And Joseph knows that. He says, you are his wife. Potiphar, you are a part of his wife. He turns to her and he says, how can I do this? He's given me everything to my care except for you, his wife. That's what he says. And so he resists. How does he resist? How does he resist? Joseph He doesn't look inside himself to muster up some sort of will to resist the impulse. He looks outside of himself. In verse 7, he says, how can I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? I'm going to say this a different way. What he's saying is, God is my first love. I will not cheat on him. Joseph's love for the Lord is, mastered over his love for power and certainly his love for sex. C.S. Lewis says, we need to reorder the loves of our heart under one master, 
a supreme love that puts all of the other things that we desire and love in its place. That means that you may desire this or that. You may want this or that. You may desire, or you may, you may desire these things. But your desire for Jesus, your love for Jesus has to be greater than all those other things that you love. It's got to be greater than money. It's got to be greater than your promotions. It's got to be greater than even your family. It's got to be greater than sex. It's got to be greater than the security that you desire or the acceptance that you want or the intimacy with others that you want. It has to be supreme love, a supreme love that rules over, reigns over all the other loves. And Joseph says, God is my supreme love. How can God become our supreme love? Because love is one of those things that integrates and connects our body and our soul. My favorite book, Pride and Prejudice, Mr. Darcy. Remember Mr. Darcy? He turns to Elizabeth Bennett, and what does he say? You have bewitched me, body and soul. In other words, you are the key to bringing those two things together. You complete me. How can the beauty of God and our love for God bewitch us, body and soul? You need to look to the greater Joseph. Joseph is well-built. Joseph is handsome. Joseph is powerful. We are attracted, drawn to people like that. It's this innate desire to 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 be loved and to be intimate with something that beautiful. And that can twist us and corrode us in very, very powerful ways. Joseph is well-built. Joseph is handsome. Joseph has power. You need to look to a greater Joseph. It's not just about resisting that. You need to look to a greater Joseph that supremely rules over all those other things that we desire. Someone that is more beautiful, more powerful, more desirable, and that's Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 2 says Jesus Christ is equal to God. In other words, Joseph had power, but Jesus Christ has is the creator of the universe, the sustainer and the governor of the universe, and yet he emptied himself to give us power. And Isaiah 53 says that when Jesus Christ came to earth, he had no beauty. The most beautiful, the most beautiful God, the most glorious God, the most majestic being, and yet he had no majesty. He gave it all up. He gave up his beauty. He gave up his majesty. Joseph was wrongly accused and was condemned, but Jesus Christ was also wrongly accused and condemned on the cross. Joseph was tempted Jesus Christ was also tempted, three times tempted. Luke chapter 4, immediately after he was baptized, Jesus is in the wilderness, and he encounters Satan, and Satan there tempted him in the wilderness. Joseph is in the wilderness, Jesus Christ is in the wilderness, and Satan tempts him three times. One, turn these stones to bread. In other words, fulfill your desires, fulfill your cravings. You're hungry, you have an appetite. Two, I can give you all, this, all these kingdoms. If you can just take that power for yourself. Or three, jump from this high place. God will save you. Preserve yourself. Fulfill yourself. Take power for yourself. Preserve yourself. That's what Satan says. And each time, what did Jesus do? He refused and he went to the scriptures. He went to the Bible. Why? Because Jesus' love for his father, Jesus' love for God mastered over every desire that he had. His love for God was greater than all the other desires and loves in his life. And so you lead him right to Gethsemane, towards the end of his life, at Gethsemane in the garden, Jesus then descends. He was already in the wilderness, he came to the earth, and then he descends to an even deeper wilderness, 
And then on the cross, he descends into the ultimate wilderness. Joseph is in this foreign place in Egypt where he's tempted. But Jesus Christ, he went to the ultimate wilderness on the cross. And he was tempted. Through every wilderness period, he was tempted. And each time, he endured. And each time, he clung to Scripture. And each time, he recited Scripture to the end. Why? Why did he do it? The author of Hebrews says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. What was that joy for Jesus that was worth giving up everything? Emptying himself, enduring every temptation, enduring every shame, enduring every suffering. What was the joy that gave Jesus such a deep self-control in every temptation and moment? And the answer is what? What was his love? There was the glory of God and God's love for his people, his bride, his church. We have bewitched his body and soul. Jesus Christ loved his church, the bride. Jesus' love for his father, and as a result, his love for us, was greater than all the other desires. And when you see Jesus Christ on the cross, enduring the cross, every temptation for you because of his love for you, then Jesus becomes your love, your supreme desire that can order all your other loves. You can gaze on his beauty and rest in his love. And that will fulfill you in a way that masters over every craving, every desire, every lust. Lust for power, lust for approval, lust for intimacy. Now, the last point as we close out, in Genesis chapter 37, we see Joseph, at the start of his story, his narrative, he's spoiled and he's arrogant, he's rotten. And, and he's craving power. He wants power. He's dreaming about power. But here, things are finally starting to look better for him. They're shaping up for him. He's becoming wealthy. He's finally getting powerful. And yet, when tempted, he does the right thing. And yet, he's still punished. He's back where he started, in a sense. Joseph is in prison. And it was most likely he was in prison for over 10 years. What's the last temptation then? The temptation is to give up. To give up doing right. To despair against God. When you've lived well, it's one thing if you live poorly and you suffer. You kind of get it in some ways. You say, well, you know, there's self-pity there, and you kind of say, I deserve it. There's still self-pity, but you say, I deserve it. But when you live well and yet fail, when you live well and yet suffer, it's the temptation to give up, to despair against God. But think about this. If Joseph hadn't gone to prison, he never would have met the king's prisoners never would have met the king, the pharaoh, and never would have risen to the role of prime minister in Egypt, ultimately, to save the entire country and his people. What does that tell you? God is still present. He is there. He's there in our suffering, even when he seems absent. Right now, we're isolated. There are a lot of people, even in our congregation, that feel and sense that isolation, that are experiencing the loneliness Uh, it's not just being stir-crazy. That's like stage one. There's an isolation. There's almost a despair. How can you deal with that anxiety and isolation and despair? There are people in our congregation that are losing their jobs, that are suffering health issues, that are experiencing anxiety, maybe a drop in income or status as a result of that. What did suffering do for Joseph? What did it do for Joseph? 
Because Joseph, this proud, arrogant person, was finally starting to get it. And the suffering was starting to make him humble because he was finally starting to see, he was finally starting to see that God is behind all of this. He was acknowledging God. At Potiphar's house, he was acknowledging God. You don't see Joseph in self-pity. You don't see a lot written about those 10 to 13 years that he was in prison. You don't see how he was wallowing in misery. You don't see the despair. You don't see the self-pity. Now, how did he do this? How do we know this? When you study the Bible, you have to look for certain patterns. And I'm going to give you a very, very brief uh, intro to interpretation. In this text, there are parallels between verses 2 and 3 and verse 21, between verse 4 and 5 and verse 22, and between verse 6 and verse 23. We call that a chiasm. You see it everywhere in the Bible. In fact, you see it in just about every chapter in the Bible. And here, if you look at the first part, things are going great for Joseph. Everyone's getting blessed. And the text says what? That the Lord was with Joseph. But that last part, what happens? Things are just blowing up. Things are just blowing up. And yet, what do you see? The Lord was with Joseph. You almost see a mirror and a parallel. We call that a chiasm. God was with Joseph from the beginning in verse 2 and all the way into verse 21 at the end when he's in prison. And he's endowing Joseph with blessing. And the people around him are blessed as a result. So what's that entire middle part then consisting of? What's it about? If the beginning is about God being with Joseph and the end is about God being with Joseph, whether it's in blessing or in suffering, the middle part is how God is with Joseph. And what do you see? It's the temptations. It's the suffering to show that God was still present with Joseph through all that. What does that mean? God is with you in your success. Who gave you your job? Who gave you your success? Who gave you your intelligence? Who gave you your looks? God is with you in your success, but God is also with you in your temptation. And God is with you in prison. God is with you in isolation. God is with you in sickness and in suffering. How do you endure And the only way that you can endure is if you never forget the ultimate Joseph because Jesus Christ, the ultimate Joseph, the greater Joseph, lived a perfect life and yet his life just incredibly just blew up. And he ended up on the cross. He chose the cross. And there he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Meaning what? God is not with me. And so I'm not integrating I'm disintegrating. I'm falling apart, body and soul, trinity being ripped apart on the cross. Don't despair. Don't despair because you're trying to live right and life still crashes around you. You are embodying the likeness of Christ. And God is present and active with you because he was empty and absent from Jesus. That's how kings are made. That's how royalty is made. That's how children of God are made. Use your power then to continue blessing others. Notice that even on the cross, Jesus was still integrated. He still clung to scripture. He kept his integrity. God had forsaken him, and yet he was still praying to God. He was reciting a psalm, Psalm 22. God still remained at the center. He never gave up. That supreme love, that's what it means to be supreme. That in the worst times, his love for God was still evident. Jesus' love for his father and for the church was supreme over his life to the end. I want you to let that master over you. The world before me, 
the world behind me, the cross before me. No turning back, no turning back. I've decided to follow Jesus. Let's pray.